It is such a bad time to be mining, and yet hash rate's mooning right now. Um, so I have kind of like two, two I guess, theories on that. Either A, the like super cynical take um, would be like maybe someone's trying to squeeze out the other inefficient guys, like Rockefeller style, and you know maybe they have like a huge capital base, right? And they're able to like temporarily operate like either at break even or like slightly underwater, but at the same time they can squeeze out all the inefficient guys and then buy all the rigs cheap. What's up, everyone? We've got another episode of Zero X Research here, a show hosted by analysts for analysts, where we bring on the top research talent, project founders, and thought leaders in the space to ask the hard questions. If you're deeply in the weeds of crypto, then this one's for you. I'm your co-host, Dan Smith. And I'm your co-host, Sam Martin. And this show is made possible thanks to our incredible sponsors, Chainalysis and Flipside. Today, we're joined by Zero X Pibbles and Westy from the BlockWorks Research Team. Uh, guys, let's hop right into the uh, hot seat, cool throne. Westy, we can start with you. Who you got for your hot seat? Yeah, I can start us off here. Uh, the hot seat, I got some crypto tech stocks. So I know uh, last week or the week before, we had some pretty bad earnings when it came to tech stocks in general with uh, Snap um, being the main culprit. But this past week, we had some pretty bad earnings calls for crypto-related stocks. So the biggest one was Coinbase. Basically, we saw their revenue was definitely not up to par with what we were expecting, although they did have an increase in subscription revenue, which is sort of where they're heading in the future. So there was that caveat, but um, the main source of their revenue came from interest payments, which was as a result of higher uh, federal funds rate. And so just a sign of the times. And so, yeah, the revenue numbers weren't good, and it hasn't been trading very well uh, since those earnings came out. I think it's down um, like 10% since. And then we also saw Meta, which um, I'm going to lump in here because they're investing pretty heavily in the metaverse. But yeah, their earnings are pretty abysmal as well. Um, advertisers are just not paying as much on the platform. And one of the interesting things is that it looks like they're going to be shelling out uh, $250 billion over the next 10 years into this sort of metaverse platform, which I think investors didn't really like because that's like the, the biggest investment we've seen in anything since the Apollo moon missions on like an inflation adjusted basis, which is just absolutely wild. Um, I know like I'm a believer in the metaverse as a whole concept, but in Facebook specific vision, like I don't know if it's going to work out exactly as planned, and I think that's what a lot of people are thinking. But, I mean, that's definitely the the hot seat for me. And then cool throne be Eric Voorhees. Um, for those that didn't see the conversation between him and SBF on Bankless, I highly recommend you check that out. Um, basically, they had a debate about crypto regulation. Like what, is, what does that look like? What should that look like? And Eric Voorhees very eloquently put sort of the ideologues case for crypto like why we're here why we're building and it was just beautiful to hear um and so like people within crypto definitely loved the message that he was spreading but at the same time what was super interesting is that uh people in dc actually thought sbf won that debate whereas people in crypto thought it was eric that won by a landslide so i thought that conversation was super interesting and i loved the way eric Voorhees sort of put um, like why we're building and why like we shouldn't be um, accepting bad regulation into the space. Just to hit on your hot seat there, definitely agree. Uh, it's pretty brutal when you see, I think like, you know, Facebook's 
our meta has now wiped uh, wiped seven years worth of gains out. Um, so yeah, we, you know, in the industry, we get a lot of heat for for being overly volatile, especially on the downside. And then you look at things like this, and it's you know, like meta is held by plenty of uh, institutional grade investors that that clearly know what they're doing. So it's it's interesting to see this. And when you put things in perspective of <laughs> Are we exploring which which uh, new frontier are we exploring? Uh, space or the metaverse? That's uh, actually, I actually hadn't heard that comparison before. That's that's a wild uh, wild analogy there. I definitely am like fascinated by the metaverse and think GameFi has a real uh, use case for crypto. Um, but wow, that that's kind of astonishing. Uh, do you think this is going to pay off for Meta? I mean, that is the question. I mean, they pivoted their entire name. To meta like this they're they're all in um and like is this gonna work out like i think so like i think like in general they're they're building towards that future i think maybe they might be overpaying or over investing but at the same time i think it's going to work out because of the major technology companies they're the first ones to really recognize that that's where the future is going so i i think it's going to work out and maybe uh meta stock is a good buy but in general like no one really knows at this point uh, investors, I mean, according to the market, don't think it's a good idea or don't think it's going to work out. But uh, yeah, I guess we'll see. I'd take Meta over Snapchat, though. I mean, there is no way in hell I'm buying a Snapchat subscription. Like, absolutely not. So at least Meta is working towards something a little bit bigger is, is what my take would be there. I've, I've yet to listen to the uh, bankless debate with Eric and uh, SBF, but that's been on my to listen to list. So I'll be sure to do that this week. People, you want to rock and roll, what you got for Hot Seat Cool Throne? Yeah, for Hot Seat, I have the Art Gobbler's Mint. It's free to mint. Immediately priced everyone out because that floor instantly went to 10 ETH. The only way to get free mint was to hold hands with someone on Paradigm, for lack of a, a more obscene phrase. So hand-holding with Paradigm. Um, everyone got priced out immediately. Everyone was super mad. And now you look at the floor and it is down 50% from launch. And you saw the Goo token, which was trading at $3,000 off the bat, is now $30. So definitely hot seat. And then for Cool Throne, I have anyone who was holding art blocks of any type. They got free friendship bracelets. Last week, there's a 18,000 supply, and each art blocks holder can mint two for free, and they're sitting at like a 0.2 floor right now. So that's some nice free money for all the money anyone lost on art blocks. I know you're uh, you're an NFT guy. Were you dabbling in uh, some of these friendship bracelets? I claimed them and sold them too early, and uh, now I'll just watch them. <laughs> no. Yeah, going back to the gobblers, that was definitely one of the most sought-after whitelists in a while. I know, like, I was trying to basically had a draw tool, and they were accepting anyone that drew uh, good art with their uh, tool, and I, I, I tried my best. Uh, I drew, like, a panda and a couple other things and just tried to get, what well, you had to get the art gobbler, like, critics' attention it was this like whole complicated thing. I, I, I spent way too much time trying to get on this whitelist and didn't get in. Uh, yeah, you definitely had to hold hands with some paradigm folks to get that. It's pretty brutal. Yeah, and for the audience, Westy is, uh, Westy is actually very impressively artistically talented, a bit of a singer uh, and instrumentalist himself. So 
Um, you can imagine his, his images were significantly better than myself and the rest of us out there trying to scribble with a, with a mouse and key. Yeah, I know mine was a terrible attempt, so I'll, uh, I'll move on to my hot seat in Cool Throne. For the hot seat, I've got Solana again. I think I put them in there last week, uh, but TVL is below $900 million. They're uh, flipped by Arbitrum and Optimism, two of the leading ETHL2s. You know, the Mango exploit was bad. There's a lot of drama going on with royalties and NFTs. Um, and that's like a huge aspect of the Solana ecosystem is NFTs. It's kind of like their bread and butter. And then it's also down about 7% as of recording with the SPF CZ drama we've been seeing on Twitter. Uh, I guess I will caveat with they had a big Google Cloud uh, partnership, and they also have intent to partner with Instagram uh, as well as Polygon on their NFT sales. So I guess that's uh, kind of how you could rebuttal there. But I still have Solana on my hot seat. I'm not a huge fan. In terms of Cool Throne, I would have to go with Polygon. Uh, they've got partnerships with Meta to enable the, the NFT minting and trading that I just mentioned on Instagram, although Apple still gets their 30% cut, of course. And then DraftKings runs uh, the 12th largest validator last time I checked on the proof-of-stake commit chain. Then you got Starbucks and Reddit NFTs. The list really goes on. JP Morgan executed their first DeFi trade on Polygon last week. And Mihalio, or Mihalio, I might be botching that pronunci pronunciation, but he said on Twitter that a tokenomics revamp is coming uh, pretty soon, so I'm, I'm looking out for that. Uh, yeah, so I guess they're, uh, they're on my cool throne. Yeah, going back to the Solana stuff, like I definitely get where you're coming from, to, but... I heard like this week because they had the, their breakpoint conference that there were a lot of like really cool builders and that like some people said it was like the most sold out conference that they've seen, like the most crowded, which is pretty surprising given, like you said, that their TVL has dropped off a cliff. Um, and so maybe there's more coming down the pipeline. And I also know there's people raising for building like um, C-level virtual machine execution environments and rollups on like other base layers. Um, and so, you know, maybe it ends up living on, but yeah, things right now definitely look bleak, but there might be some inklings of uh, a better future. I mean, I definitely hope so. Yeah, I saw on Saturday the uh, the Google Cloud news, they're running a validator and Solana went like 20% in a few hours while I was away from the desk and eating breakfast, so it was cool. And then also Jump has something, it's called like Fire Dancer, but they're like, they're doing something with Solana, I don't know what it is, but they're shoving like tens of millions of transactions through on their own runtime, and it's supposedly pretty good tech. If you guys had to hold a bag of AVAX or Soul for a year, which one would you choose? Ooh. Uh, I'm going Solana. I think there will be a, a use case for like high TPS chains. Um, I, even if we don't know what that is today, right? Like, I like how they're building out in this like mobile stack. No one else is even like thinking about that direction, let alone building in it. Um, and so yeah, it's like you know you always hear the the comparisons like when the internet was built, you, nobody ever thought you'd be getting in a car uh, dri driven by a stranger, right? Like Uber. Uh, that was just not conceivable at the time and you know when we're building this new technology of, of blockchains like i don't we definitely don't know the end state of where this is going uh, i just can't really conceive uh, what this technology is capable of and there's a pretty good probability that you know high high throughput chains will have a, a role in the future so i'm going soul i'm also team soul i mean avalanche has steve harvey bringing family game night to the blockchain <laughs> solana has the phone i mean they did coachella tickets so there, there's, 
I know you're playing that Steve Harvey <laughs> game. Yeah, that's my favorite game. Um, no, I, I'm going soul as well. I mean, these, these guys already said it. They just have way more going on at the moment. I mean, they just announced what Meta is using them as NFTs, the mobile stack, as they said. It seems like there's a lot of builders, whereas Avalanche, I've heard basically nothing in terms of big integrations, partnerships, and whatnot. So, yeah, I mean, at this moment, I'm definitely going soul. All right, Sam, you know what that means. Forces you into the corner of taking the bull case for AVAX. What you got? I literally can't do it. I would take Soul, and I just had them on my hot seat, so <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I'm not Harvey. taking Harvey. <laughs> uh, fair enough, fair enough. Well, my uh, my hot seat cool throw and kind of centered around this weekend's drama. Um, you know, I think they, I was writing our newsletter today, which, you know, shameless plug, if you're not subscribed to the Blockworks Research newsletter, definitely do so. We'll throw a link in the show notes for sure. Uh, but I found this quote, and it was, you can't underestimate how traumatic divorce is for the children. Uh, you know, I think everyone's really losing with these, this Binance versus FTX battle. Uh, you know, these are two massive figureheads in the industry that have the full capability of pushing this, this space forward. Uh, so I'd really love to see them kind of like, maybe not necessarily working together, but not like adversely spending their time uh, attacking each other uh, on Twitter or on chain. Either of those are just, we just don't need. And I uh, need you know, to kind of put some context around what all happened. Uh, I think it was like last week or maybe the week before, there was uh, some reporting that came to light that kind of was highlighting, hey, maybe Alameda's not as solvent as we thought, but you know, Caroline, the CEO of Alameda, quickly tweeted out like a correction. It was like, hey, you know, we have, uh, you know, over $10 billion of assets that weren't on this circulating report. Like we're, you know, everything is shored up. We're good to go. Uh, back when the liquidity crunch happened and during the three AC collapse, you know, all these, um, debt providers were really like crunching it, like with, with, uh, calling back these loans and kind of tightening their books. Uh, and you know, Alameda did compliantly, uh, with no problems. So, uh, you know, it's hard to believe that FTX would, or, uh, their like sister trading firm would actually be, uh, truly insolvent, um, you know, just that would be a real shock. Like 3AC was definitely surprising, but I think a lot of that kind of, we just got blinded by the, the bull run more so than anything else and like thought uh, these guys were geniuses, but you know, they were just levered long everything in a bull market. Whereas FTX is like generating a ton of revenue. Uh, they they do have some, like they're on the Alameda side, they do have aggressive trading strategies that aren't necessarily the most uh, community friendly, but um, you know, it's a little more complex in the, the operation they're running. Um, but it got interesting when CZ of Binance kind of saw this, uh, this insolvency drama and was like openly stated he was willing to market dump like $500 million uh, of FTT, which is a highly illiquid token, right? So uh, if you're just going to market dump this, you're going you're gonna to be causing serious externalities on market price. Uh, and Caroline tweeted back at him pretty quickly and was like, hey, uh, we'll buy all of this at $22, which was pretty cool to see. She's out here defending the line uh, against a nine-figure dump. So that kind of throws any insolvency risk out the window. Uh, and this kind of led to SBF and CZ kind of going back and forth on Twitter. Uh, but this morning I woke up to a pretty funny tweet that, uh, from SBF that said, FTX is fine. Assets are fine. Um, I've gotten in uh, one too many disagreements with my girlfriend to know that when someone tells me I'm fine, they are most certainly not fine. Uh, so that was kind of this red flag for me. But again, like I, I just really don't see a world where where FTX is actually insolvent. So you know, for a winner and loser of this debate, uh, I'm going hot seat SBF. 
Uh, I feel like he's just been in, in the news for all the wrong reasons these days, uh, and more so the driving factor here is CZ on the cool throne, because anytime you can flex a nine-figure market dump on somebody, that, that's just badass. There's no other way around it. Curious if uh, any of you guys have any hot takes about this. I mean, the assets are fine tweet definitely gives me some like steady lads deploying more capital type vibes. Um, but no, I, I agree with you that like it doesn't, like I don't think they're even close to insolvency. I think this was just kind of definitely a weekend entertainment uh, as it was. But um, yeah, I think funds are safe, food, things are fine. Um, it is interesting what's sort of happening on chain in terms of Almeida dumping a bunch of random altcoins um, and sending funds back and forth. It does seem like there's some sort of scrambling going on, but specifically what's happening, I don't know. Um, but yeah, overall, I definitely think the insolvency rumors are just way overblown. Everyone loves fear porn in this uh, bear market. So yeah, it is what it is. Yeah, I'd say the only thing it confirmed for me was I'm willing to pay $8 uh, for Twitter every month. I mean, it's not often you get to watch billionaires just go back and forth in the open on the solvency of their companies. So I'm all for the $8 sub. Hell yeah. I'm heavy team CZ just because he's given multiple opportunities to anyone who's paid attention for like the past three years to just make like crazy wealth. Like he who complies with regulation when it's time to comply with regulation but until then it's like lawless so he'll continue to just offer anything he can versus alameda i mean if you're trading on ftx i know people who specifically don't trade on ftx because alameda will eat your lunch just market making that like you will have a better chance winning some trades on binance yeah, no kidding. Uh, Sam, I think you win uh, the best take, though. Eight bucks is a, a drop in the bucket for this kind of drama. But uh, yeah, I think it's a good segue to kind of move into our Flipside Dash review. So Flipside is one of our great sponsors who's so willing to, uh, to, to work with us and make this episode possible. And uh, you know we're going to do a little bit of a Dash review here. So uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar, Flipside is an open source data provider that uh, aggregates blockchain data and makes it available for anyone to query and build uh, dashboards for review. Uh, so we're going to take a look at one of these dashboards here. I'll throw this up on the screen. We're going to do a little bit of a deep dive uh, and, and kind of walk through what the Art Gobbler's collection is. Uh, and it's got some unique uh, economic incentives here. So you know, Pibbles, can you, can you walk us through kind of what this uh, project's all about and some of the uniqueness to it? Yeah, so to start, Art Gobblers is Rick and Morty founder Justin Roiland's foray into NFTs. He did this with Paradigm. They've been working on it for a while. They they hyped it up a lot. So the biggest thing with Art Gobblers is it was a free mint if you could get on the whitelist by stroking Paradigm's ego. Um, so a lot of people were really displeased, like we talked about earlier, with the mint process and how that was split up a couple cool things about art gobblers is that it's basically like a slow motion olympus dow so you hold these gobblers and they generate goo which is an erc20 token so the more goo you have in your gobblers tank the quicker you get goo and um, the reason for goo or the use case for goo is to mint more art gobblers so they only minted 2000 at the start 
the max supply is 10,000. And by holding gobblers, you can get a ton of goo, and that's how you'll mint more gobblers. And then there are some legendary gobblers who will start at a Dutch auction of, I think, 69 gobblers to mint a legendary gobbler. So the, the play here is for people to pool together their assets, get as much goo and gobblers as they can, and then hopefully mint the legendary. Another cool thing is you can use goo to mint pages. And pages are what you can use to, you can commission an artist or you can draw yourself. You can draw different art on these pages that cost goo. And then a gobbler can eat pages. And then once they eat that page, they'll forever have that piece of art in their stomach. So there's a lot of fun mechanisms going on with art gobblers. So good tech, but um, terrible distribution. So uh, okay, okay. Let me let me try to unpack this for a second. So art gobblers is an NFT collection um, with these <laughs> the hilarious looking guys. If you can, like here, like I mean, what what are we looking at here? I love it. Um, definitely get the uh, Rick and Morty vibes from these guys with it, without a doubt. And so I have my gob gobbler. He is creating goo. Um, and the more c goo that he creates and his stores in his tank, then the more, the, uh, the quicker he produces more goo. So it's sort of like the more the merrier. So I guess, I, I, I guess the goal here would be to accumulate gobblers and goo. Uh, and it's sort of like you can see where the Ponzi's coming in here don't want to be the last one holding goo but you got to time it right uh because as soon as you start dumping your goo you're making less goo is that kind of is that kind of how yeah, you see this that's correct and so like awesome well then i'd love to kind of walk through this dashboard here i want to give a quick shout out to the the author of this dashboard farhadi navid uh, again using the power of Flipside's on-chain data data he was able to throw this together um, but yeah, can you uh, take us through this dashboard and, you know, there's a lot of cool information on here. I'd love to get your take on kind of how you see this playing out. Yeah. So if you scroll down, there's a chart that shows top collections by volume. And because these were 10 ETH out the gate, you can see right there, Art Gobbler's volume compared to other collections in October, it just about flipped CryptoPunks and it was running for all the blue chip collections. So pretty crazy in the middle of a bear market that they could just pump this volume like that. And this is actually a really cool chart put together that visualizes that well. Yeah, so it looks like we did about $15.5 million of volume in the ARC gobblers where the CryptoPunks were at 18.96, uh, Bored Apes at 27, uh, more loot at 61, almost 62 million, and terraforms at 96. So uh, they kind of ranked here in in fifth, and yeah, definitely overthrown or almost overthrowing, or even being in the conversation with like CryptoPunks and Bored Apes is. Uh, as somebody who is just not an NFT guy, this is that's, you know, that is still pretty impressive to see the the adoption that this is getting. The real issue with Art Gobblers is that. There's like maybe less than 10 wallets. I can't really see that. But there's less than 10 wallets controlling most of the supply of gobblers. Because if you're trying to get the most goo, or if you want to get a legendary gobbler, then you kind of have to pull your gobblers with like a different DAO or a multi-sig or something to stand a fair chance at even trying to win this game. So we have someone who has like 100 gobblers 
being the number one wallet, like that's pretty insane to coordinate that much with so many moving parts to do the math of like who gets what. Yeah, so is this just like, you know, groups of like telegram groups just sending all like all their gobblers to one wallet and just letting these multipliers play off each other and maximize the amount of goo they're extracting? Yeah, 100%. And then they're trying to mint more gobblers to hit that legendary gobbler. But then it's also, there's so much game theory involved with like, when do you empty your goo to start minting gobblers? Because the price to mint gobblers goes down if no one mints, but it also goes up if people start minting. So it's just like a huge, like, I don't know, it's a game of hot potato or chicken or something. Like, you just have to see when the buy pressure comes and how you're going to mint the most. Right. That makes a ton of sense. And, you know, I just want to give one more shout out to Flipside here. They have just have the most comprehensive data uh, with for on-chain data and crypto. And it really gives you the, the best insights you need to work smarter. Um, and you can instantly qu- query all of this data for free, right? So this, this incredible author built this dashboard um, without having to pay for any of this, this data, which is just an incredible, uh, you know, it's kind of the part of the ethos of crypto. It's the, one of the you know, beautiful things about working in this industry. Uh, and so, yeah, I just want to say we're going to be doing like a, a, a weekly dashboard review where we break down a new dashboard built by a community member. And we're actually doing a $75 bounty in partnership with Flipside. So be sure to check out the link in the show notes. Uh, check out that bounty and it, maybe you know, if the winner of that uh, bounty will actually be the dashboard we end up reviewing. So, uh, you know, we're always looking for cool dashboards on hot topics. So feel free to hit us in the DMs on Blockworks Res at Twitter. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we always have to break down a new dash. And one more thing I want to check out here uh, just before we go is the goo price chart. So uh, back, so uh, yeah, so Gobblers launched on October 31st, late in the evening. So on November 1st and bleeding into November 2nd, Goo started trading. Uh, and we see that it opened up around, you know, floating in that one to $3,000 range uh, and is subsequently down 99%, 98.7% to 27 bucks. That is just a, uh, a wild collapse uh, of asset price. But um, I bet you that uh, one wall with 79 gobblers stashed away is still collecting all this goo and it's probably half the reason uh, why we see this price chart looking the way it looks. Yeah, I feel bad for anyone who uh, tried to chase the goo chart. That's just down horrendous. <laughs> Poor guys. Uh, but anyways, before we head over to our interview with uh, Will Clemente, I want to take a second to thank our other wonderful sponsor, Chainalysis. They're one of the leading crypto analytics providers that are helping legitimize our industry. They enable uh, investors to track on-chain uh, wallet movements with relative ease. They also offer some great research in this space, which is available for free on their website, and we can link to that in the show notes. They also offer extremely in-depth courses on all things crypto, and they're very much worth checking out. Chainalysis is building the tools our industry needs to bring in the institutional capital, so be sure to check them out in the show notes. All right, we got Will Clemente here. Uh, thanks for joining us uh, on uh, the second episode of Zero X Research. Will just launched a research firm called Reflexivity Research. It's an institutional-grade research firm that focuses on helping TradFi invest their trillions of dollars into Bitcoin and digital assets. So thanks for coming on, Will. Hey, thanks a lot for having me on, guys. It was nice uh, meeting you, Sam, in New York, and I know... Back then we are like, hey, we'll have to do something together. So it's nice to finally hop on a pod and, and jam. Yeah, absolutely. I was stoked when I uh, ran into you because I've been following you on Twitter for a while. So it's nice to finally uh, get to talk with you face to face. 
But uh, before we dive into the report that you uh, that you wrote, that's really solid on the state of uh, Bitcoin mining, I kind of wanted to get your take on the SBF CZ drama that we're seeing all over crypto Twitter. Yeah, man. I mean, look, I'm just I'm just here with the popcorn. I I, I think it's like super entertaining. I've just been following along. Don't really have, you know, a crazy amount of insight. I, I did see earlier today, though. Um, it seems like potentially uh, there was like an OTC settlement of the FTT that Binance wanted to offload. I saw some like posts about some like on-chain transactions from. Uh, Larry over at the block and Hisaka posted it as well. So it seems like potentially um, that that's been settled, which I think would be you know bullish for FTT short term and, and Solana because there's been like a boatload of shorts that have piled in on both of those. Um, so paying attention to that potentially from like a trading perspective might might, might pump some of those things uh, if if I can confirm that. Uh, and then yeah, I guess the other piece would be you know on chain. It seems like uh, there's been a bunch of stablecoin outflows from FTX. Um, so, you know, there's definitely some people that have been kind of nervous about the whole thing. I think rightfully so after, uh, you know, everything earlier this year with like, you know, 3AC blowing up, um, all these, you know, centralized lending, uh, you know, lending entities that, you know, either blew up or took a massive hit. So, uh, yeah, I mean, look, I think it's just bear market things, right? Everyone's like super on edge with, you know, all the people blowing up left and right and all, you know, this counterparty risk that we saw exposed earlier this year so. Yeah, like I said, I'm I'm just kind of observing for now. Yeah, I'm with you on that, Will. Um, it's been interesting and, and agreed. Like the Sunday night drama, who needs uh, reality TV uh, when you got things like this? I'm a House of Dragons fan, so uh, it was nice to to have my first season, or my first Sunday without House of Dragons get replaced by some good drama. Um, at least we've been trading yeah, in with a two percent trading range, right? So at least we got some you know, form of entertainment. I guess it's kind of the silver lining. Exactly. Yeah, it's tough to imagine, you know, F FTX to actually be in, uh, you know, true financial trouble here. But um, yeah, it'd be it'd be interesting to, to to watch this play out. And I just am blown away, like CZ being able to like make a flex on Twitter with with a nine figures a nine figure threat. Like that's that just never gets old to me. Um, it's just a, such a crazy industry we are we work in, but uh, it, it's kind of how the system goes. Um, so yeah, I'd love to dive deeper uh, into that report uh, and kind of get. Get your take on kind of what the pu uh, public Bitcoin mining landscape looks like. Uh, you know, you brought a great overview that kind of highlighted four core questions around this uh, this industry, and kind of like, you know, what do the current market conditions look like, and why has that been such a, a difficult uh, environment for these miners to succeed in, uh, as well as who the, these public miners are, and which ones are best p positioned to survive this bear market, uh, and then kind of like what you expect to see the space moving uh, the direction that we're moving in going forward. Uh, so, you know, kind of like take those uh, one, one at a time and start with, you know, really just what the current state of the market is and kind of how this perfect storm of spot price, hash rate and energy cost is kind of uh, really working against these miners. Yeah, sure. No, I appreciate the, the segue there. Yeah, I think, look, um, this is something that has taken place during every single, you know, Bitcoin cycle and you know, quote unquote Bitcoin bear market. Um, so in terms of like the kind of dynamics that are going on, it's not ent anything entirely new. But I think what's different this time is, A, you have people that took out these massive loans to purchase rigs and BTC in the bull market. Uh, and on top of that, just generally, like, you know, we have these massive publicly traded companies now that they have to post their financials, right? So where historically you kind of knew from a first principle standpoint, you know, the kind of underlying, you know, dynamics that, that were making the, the, the conditions like unfavorable for miners. Now you can actually see, you know, on their balance sheets, you know, what's actually being, you know, taking place. So. I think that that's really interesting to like actually see it unfold. I guess just to like preface before getting into like the actual like public 
uh, landscape itself, like just highlighting from like first principles standpoint, like what's going on that's making the conditions so bad for miners. So if you could you know, think about miners positioning and like how they approach the market, essentially um, the way you can think of it is they're, they're long Bitcoin uh, spot price and they're short hash rate and also short energy. Um, so obviously as Bitcoin's hash rate increases, there's more competition to mine Bitcoin um, and it makes it more difficult for uh, you know, a miner that hasn't increased their mining capacity to get the same block reward that they were getting before. Um, and so what happens traditionally uh, in, in these kind of Bitcoin cycles is miners serve as like a very pro-cyclical force. So in the bull market, they tend to hold their BTC. And then in the bear market, they become force sellers. And the reasoning behind that is because um, as Bitcoin's price is kind of ratcheting up, you know, going, you know, 5, 5 10x in, in the bull run, um, you know, you, you have all these people not only that are looking to buy, you know, BTC itself, um, but are, that are also looking at, um, you know, the returns on mining BTC over the, you know, prior year or two and say, oh, wow, look, if, if this price trend continues, you know, this Bitcoin thing, it, you know, it might be a great time to, to start mining. It's like printing free money, right? And so all these people decide to get involved in Bitcoin mining and you have this massive increase um, of, of new machines that are ordered. Now, the thing is, there's kind of a lag between when people order those machines and when they actually get plugged in. Uh, and you know, the reasoning behind that is, first of all, they have to get manufactured. Um, and historically, you know, there's been a very small number of people that have been able to manufacture these machines because it's such a specialized thing. Um, you know, these, these machines are designed specifically to um, hash SHA-256. Um, and so you know, there's a lag between when they're manufactured, when they're delivered, and then also there has to be you know, shelf space that's built out to you know, house the miners and infrastructure to house the miners. So all of these things take you know, several months um, to, to you know, get from the point of saying, hey, look, I want to get involved in mining to actually you know, being up and running. Uh, and so historically, the kind of peak in hash rate has lagged that of the peak of, of the Bitcoin uh, market price. So I think the, the clearest example is we look at 2017, Bitcoin obviously peaked at you know, 20,000. Uh, hash rate peaked out, I think it was two months after, something around that. Um, and and you know, that's because of that kind of lag of when the machines are able to actually get up and running. Now what happens for, for the miners on the network is um, it, it compresses their margins. So you know, as we mentioned, the more people that are mining, uh, the more competition there is. At the same time, the Bitcoin price is declining. Um, so you can look at something called hash price, which takes uh, price divided by hash rate. So essentially, you know, the price per hash. Um, this is like a good gauge for looking at essentially like minor margins. And so you saw that, you know, compressed heavily um, in the 2018 bear market as hash continued to ratchet up, but Bitcoin's price continued to, to push down. Uh, and so when you got to the back half of 2018, uh, yeah, and you got it on the screen there, you could see that, that hash price in the end of 2018 just, you know, absolutely nuking. Um, what happened at the end of 2018 was it kind of got to a, a peak of, you know, a lot of these miners just no longer could operate, right? At the beginning, they sell their Bitcoin reserves, they start to unplug machines, and then at the end, they have to just either fully, you know, um, pause their operations because they're not profitable at all or liquidate the entire operations, depending on, like, their financial situation. Um, and so at the end of 2018, what happened was is you had a bunch of sell, uh, selling pressure from miners. You can see that in the on-chain data you know, looking at essentially like, you know, um, wallets that have, you know, uh, BTC from Coinbase transactions, those are labeled as miners, 
you could see that a lot of uh, cell pressure was coming from, from those on-chain wallets. Um, so it, it, based on on-chain data, you know, it was, it was pretty apparent that that major leg down from 6 to 3K at the end of 2018 was basically uh, primarily like forced miner selling to, to you know, cover operational costs. Um, and so similar to that dynamic, um, you know, we have the same thing going on right now. So we have, you know, hash rate again, that, that's been ripping up. Uh, and over the last month or so, hash rate's been absolutely like mooning. And, uh, you know, not to kind of derail the conversation from discussing the market dynamics on, on like, you know, why this is unfavorable for miners, but I do wonder who exactly this entity or group of entities are that's plugging in rigs right now, because, you know, it is such a bad time to be mining and yet hash rate's mooning right now. Um, so I have kind of like two, two I guess, theories on that. Either A, the like super cynical take um, would be like maybe someone's trying to squeeze out the other inefficient guys like Rockefeller style, and you know, maybe they have like a huge capital base, right? And they're able to like temporarily operate like either at break even or like slightly underwater, but at the same time they can squeeze out all the inefficient guys and then buy all the rigs cheap. So that's one theory. Um, not really any evidence backing that just kind of like trying to conceptualize what maybe is going on and the other thing i would like be, that theory though i like that theory it's fun right it's a fun theory <laughs> yeah it's fun. and then the other one would be just you know maybe some very large energy producer that hasn't got involved in bitcoin mining decided maybe they were going to do so over the last two years and they're finally getting up and running and they have like super cheap energy like maybe someone who would like otherwise be like flaring off excess gas that you know that they have to flare off anyway and so like someone like that maybe makes sense um but yeah i mean just from like someone to decide that hey look i'm gonna go ahead and just go start mining like you know someone like you or me to just go prop up an operation in their backyard it just it's such a bad time to do so so it would in my opinion have to fall under like one of those two you know theories to to explain what that increase in hash rate is but nonetheless it's taking place and so as you can see uh, hash price just hit a new all-time low, uh, which means that you know it's it's you could think of hash price as essentially like the difficulty, not to be confused with the actual difficulty of, of the network, but the difficulty to you know be a profitable miner, right? And so that that in other words is like at an all-time high as hash price hits an all-time low, and then you throw on top of this, not only are these like natural dynamics that you know have as we just described have historically taken place, you have high energy costs. Right, and because of you know all the inflation that's taken place, supply chain issues, you know the the geopolitical situation, you know war in, in Ukraine, um, so all these things have also pushed up energy prices. So you really have like the perfect storm um, for kind of this minor capitulation period. Um, and so to kind of segue that into I guess the the public landscape now, uh, we finally started to see that translate into some like you know public financial disclosures of, of you know these miners being a uh, in, under immense stress. <laughs> Sorry. Um, if we go back to June, um, we entered kind of like an initial like mini capitulatory period. And what I'm using to define that is something called hash ribbons. So this was created by a guy named Charles Edwards at Capriol Investments, which is like a Bitcoin prop fund in Australia. Um, what he look, what, what he did is he took two different moving averages of hash rate. So he took the 30-day and 60-day moving average. And what he found is that whenever the 30-day moving average of hash rate crosses below the 60-day moving average, that signaled within a week time span an imminent minor capitulatory period. Um, and so that flashed back in June, um, 
and, and so we 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 were in that kind of capitulatory period, meaning the you know the 30 day was below the 60 day for about a month or so, and during that we saw miners you know kind of surface some issues, um, including Core Scientific uh, selling I think it was 7,200 BTC for roughly 170 million dollars, basically to shore up cash to to cover their um, debt financing costs. And so, um, you know, that, that was kind of the, I would say, initial capitulatory period that we went through back in June. Um, but now it seems like we're kind of slowly entering back into another one, unless you see a material move up in Bitcoin's price, which would, you know, ease off some of the pressure on these guys' margins. Um, but, you know, as we continue to, you know, hang out down here uh, in, you know, the doldrums at 1920K, and I've been trading in, you know, a, a 0.0005, percent trading range for the last two to three months um you know we obviously haven't seen that material move up in price so their margins you know maintain super compressed and so with that you know someone like a core who sold off a lot of their btc back in june uh to kind of temporarily you know keep themselves afloat now they've run out of that capital and they no longer have anything else to liquidate uh to cover their their financing costs so you know last week we put out a report and basically said hey look you know, miners are, you know, in, in really bad shape here. Um, you know, they, uh, you know, because of all the reasons we just described, um, you know, we're, we're probably going to see some material issues, you know, in terms of like public disclosure soon. And I had no idea, but two days later, uh, Core announced that, you know, basically they're, they're not going to be able to cover their, their you know, debt financing costs anymore. Uh, and likely they're going to be filing for bankruptcy in the next month or so. Um, here you, uh, you just pulled up on the screen uh, the Bitcoin miner total debt uh, divided by assets. You can also look at uh, debt to equity ratio as well. But as you can see, Core by far has the highest uh, debt to asset debt to equity ratios. So that just illustrates you know they they really prioritized growth, um, but that's come to backfire on them in the in, in the bear market. Um, look, I mean I never I never went through like 10ks and 10qs, but you know from my understanding like. The, the debt to equity and debt to asset ratios that core has aren't like insane but the thing is is just you know the, the bitcoin uh market in general is just so volatile and so cyclical that you know on one hand obviously like you know having some debt on the balance sheet is good because you're able to grow your business and so like in mining you know you want to have some degree of debt because you have to compete with the other miners right to to you know stay stay at the same level of profitability and to continue, you know, continue to scale up your operations as hash rate, you know, continues to pre perpetually trend up and to the right over, you know, over, you know, multi-year time frame. Um, but at the same time, you know, when we get into situations like this, uh, you know, someone who's been like, you know, more conservative, for example, like a Riot blockchain, like on the chart you just had up, you'll you'll see on uh, both the debt to uh, debt to asset and debt to equity ratios. Riot by far has the lowest debt ratios. So on a relative basis, they have the lowest amount of debt. Um, you know, much lower than even the the closest um, two, which are CleanSpark and, and BitDigital. So, um, you know, someone like a Riot is 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 chilling right now, right? Because they have very low debt. Uh, Riot also has fixed uh, energy contracts. I think they have a ten-year contract for fixed energy. Uh, so you know, they're not stressing also about the um, you know the higher energy costs. Um, but, you know, someone like a core who kind of prioritized growth in the bull market is now seeing that backfire uh, as, you know, we continue to, to be in this back half of the, of the bear market. And that, that's something I want to I want to dive a little deeper on. Right. So, you know, if we go back to like the 
you, the, what you laid out is the perfect storm, right? So a decreasing spot price of BTC, uh, an increasing hash rate, and increasing energy costs. You know, the first two of those, uh, obviously the Bitcoin price and hash rate, those are like these natural free market values that we see, um, you know, a lot of factors play into like how these go or how these, uh, how these values move. Uh, and there's a lot of market dynamics playing out. Uh, with the latter, energy costs, of course, that's a free market as well. Uh, but you have the ability to hedge off energy prices. And just as you mentioned, Riot has done so. So is this like a very popular tactic um, amongst these public miners or are more like I'm just really curious if there's like this element of greed. You know, we see like, you know, like all the whole industry, right? Like we love to degen long. We love leverage. Like, is that something we're seeing with these miners as well? Uh, are they kind of like trying to roll the dice and you know, avoid any hedging costs on energy or, or are they kind of? you know, being proactive and taking some risk management strategies here? No, that's a great question. I haven't looked into like the individual energy contracts that each miner has. I tried to look into that, um, but I didn't see anything aside from Riot, who that's the only one I know for a fact has fixed, ener fixed energy prices. Um, so yeah, I just, I don't have a great answer on that, but I will say, you know, like in terms of like the greed aspect, you know, several of these miners took out loans to, you know, purchase both rigs and BTC, including, you know, Core and Marathon. Um, Marathon's like, the state of like their financing is a bit better than than cores in terms of like the you know interest rate on it is lower so like they're good now in terms of like they can service it um but you know core obviously is you know not been able to yeah i was surprised too that you didn't see any like bitcoin miners hedging their bitcoin spot exposure like because that's what you see in agricultural commodities right like you sell your futures contract before you even have your, your commodities in the ground to grow them. Like I'm surprised Bitcoin miners weren't doing the same thing and, you know, maybe going short Bitcoin uh, in order to hedge their future production. Like, is that something you expect to see a little bit more of in the future maybe? Yeah, I think so. I think the thing is too, a lot of these guys are just also like super long-term bullish BTC and they see this as just a way to accumulate like a massive Bitcoin treasury. But I do think like moving forward, especially after like all this is unfolded publicly, when we get to the back half of this and, you know, I'm assuming there will likely be some like M&A and financial restructuring for a lot of these guys. Um, I think you'll I think you'll see more of that kind of sophisticated. And obviously, like you're capping your upside a bit by hedging that out. But, yeah, I, I think you'll see more of that moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. And I, I think it's important. I liked this chart that you included in the report, but to like kind of put into perspective how decentralized Bitcoin actually is. Like, yes, Core Scientific is a, is a big player with 5% of the global hash rate, but at the end of the day, like, it's only 5%, right? Like, what would you say about the decentralization of Bitcoin? Yeah, totally. You know, like, all of these guys combined have, I think it's roughly 17% of the global hash rate. You know, these are, like, massive, you know, at, at the peak of, you know, the bull run, we had, you know, several billion dollar uh, you know, public mining companies, and they still, you know, total less than 20% of the total hash rate. So, yeah, exactly what you just said. I think, you know, to, to some degree, this just really illustrates the decentralization of the network. Um, yeah, the other the other thing, you know, to kind of note on this chart is like, you know, if those rigs get unplugged, and I, you know, again, I'm not like a uh, distressed debt expert or anything of the sort, but like, you know, assuming, um, you know, Core is probably going to announce you know, they're filing for bankruptcy within the next few weeks. Exact, uh, you know, restructuring. I don't know how it'll take place. You know, I'm assuming though that the rigs probably won't come offline. But if they did, um, it's actually like a net good thing for the other miners because you're taking off some of the competition that's on the network. Therefore, like, on the, you know, on the margin, easing off some of the pressure on their margins. But yeah, I mean, I would assume again, like, 
I'm not a distress stat expert, but I would assume that like the rigs will probably stay online and someone else would just take over their operations. Um, I guess one other thing to hit on that, that's interesting and, and kind of like curtailing off that point, when we look at the amount of BTC that these guys hold, it's really not that significant. You know, like, again, like Core sold off, uh, it was roughly 170 mil of BTC back in June. They now only have 24 BTC. So, like, if Core goes under, like, yeah, it's like, you know, it, you don't want to see any, you know, any individual actor fail in the space. Um, but in terms of, like, the impact on the, on the you know, Bitcoin, you know, spot market itself, it's not that major. And, like, when you add up all of the top 10 largest miners, they have about 675 mil of BTC at a $20,000 price. So, you know, obviously that's not, you know, we're not talking like chump change here, but like, you know, that's not going to materially move the market because, you know, that's also assuming you're, you're getting every single public miner selling their entire treasury at the same time. You know, even, even if that was the case, you know, it would be done OTC and, you know, that could be, you know, done over like a multi-day period and have very minimal impact on the market. So, you know, from, from the, from the public's, you know, mining standpoint, I don't think the amount of BTC that they have is material enough to, you know, gap BTC down, you know, another leg to like 14K. Now, what, you know, the question that's kind of like up in the air, I, I think there's, I guess, two questions that are up in the air. Um, first of all, like how much BTC do private miners have? And like, you can look at on-chain data to look at, you know, say like uh, wallets that have like received Coinbase transactions and then, you know, you know say, okay, like, you know, that's a miner and then total up the amount of sum that those wallets have. But you also don't know like how much of that is, you know, people who just have, you know, were mining BTC back in the day and then just like lost their keys, you know, or whatever. So like, it's hard to estimate like how much of that is potential sell pressure, but I, you know, I assume it's, you know, larger than the amount that, that the public miners have. So that's the kind of biggest unknown, you know, at least with these public guys, we can see kind of generally like, okay, how much, you know, how much supply would, you know, uh, overhang on the market you know, what's the exact kind of, you know, st you know stance of all, all these guys, but like in, in the private market, we don't have any of that. Um, so I would say that's, that's one of the biggest questions in terms of like how this will resolve. Um, the other thing is what's the effect on all of the lenders that lent these guys money, right? So a lot of these loans are collateralized with ASICs. And so you've had uh, several miners that have actually had to deliver because um, they haven't been able to, you know, service their debt so they've had to actually deliver the rigs uh let me see i think it was strong yeah stronghold recently closed a debt restructuring deal with nidig so they delivered twenty six thousand two hundred rigs in exchange for 67 mil um and then you also had uh iris who stated that they're not able to you know service uh you know their interest payments as well they're generating about you know two million for mining uh and their debt obligations are about seven mil uh, so they're going to be um, they're going to be uh, selling their or giving their rigs back uh, to NIDIG to close out that debt that that debt deal as well. Um, so you know the question uh, the question I kind of have is you know w what's what's the effect on like the ASIC prices if if all these guys are liquidating if all these lending firms are all liquidating the miners you know at one time these mining rigs you know, the prices of them are already down eighty percent. And then you add on top of that the fact that the market's pretty illiquid right now. You know, if all these guys are all dumping rigs at once, um, you know, if, if I'm a buyer, I'm going to say, all right, I'm going to let you know wait for these guys to dump all that inventory, and then I'll kind of scoop it up on the cheap. Um, so that's one other thing I would say I'm, I'm watching out for. And you know, like let's say 
some of these lenders aren't able to, you know, get the full, you know, dollar amount that they would look to, you know, want to get out of these ASICs, you know, what does that put a hole in their balance sheet? And, you know, when you're talking about, for example, you know, Core Scientific borrowed from both BlockFi and Genesis, who already, you know, took a massive hit from, you know, Three Arrows Capital and the fallout of that. So, like, you know, does that cause some material issues for those guys? I don't know. Uh, but that's one other thing I would, I would say to watch out for. If you can't tell, we love data here at Blockroots Research, and Chainalysis, the leading blockchain analytics company, shares this passion with us. We use data to extract alpha and find the next thing coming in DeFi, but Chainalysis is doing the gritty work and building trust in blockchains. To onboard the next trillion dollars of capital into the industry, we need to grow safe consumer access to cryptocurrency and promote more financial freedom with less risk. Chainalysis has some of the most comprehensive and reliable data in the space, and they use this data to power a full suite of their solutions that can be utilized by industry professionals. Best-in-class training and certifications are also led by Chainalysis and some of the brightest minds in the space. If you haven't heard of Chainalysis, you got to check them out, and we'll link to them in the show notes. Yeah, so we think about kind of like where this space is moving going forward. Uh, I think it's a huge huge factor that you pointed out, you know, if, even if they were, if public miners were to just flood the market uh, with all the spot BTC they held, they, they really wouldn't move the market in, in a massive way because we hear, you know, minor capitulation really touted as this, this huge uh, market risk. Um, so yeah, really, really appreciative of the insight you can shed on that. Uh, yeah, and, and around the, the, the private point, you know, uh, it is kind of interesting that we have these multi-billion dollar corporations um, that are mining all this Bitcoin and yet, you know, private miners are still uh, even larger than, than some of these public miners. Um, and so I kind of pose this question to you, you know, like what's the landscape of how things are today? And like, so let's say you just stumbled upon, you know, a 300, $300 million in a, in a cold wallet that you had from back in, you know, 20, 2013 era. Uh, how would you kind of out, think about allocating this capital out? Would you be interested in buying some of these uh, distressed miners? Or do you think the better play is just to kind of buy spot Bitcoin? It's a great question. You know, I think... Um... When you think about like, you know, when you want to be buying something, it's typically like when there's four sellers in the same way that like, you know, when do you want to sell something? It's typically like to forced buyers, AKA like shorts that are covering or like people that are short on the sideline and therefore are like finally capitulating because price keeps ripping in their face. So they're like technically, you know, forced buyers. That's, you know, when you usually want to sell things. And so like, you know, where we are now, I would say in terms of like Bitcoin itself, a lot of the forced selling uh, outside of potentially, you know, the private miners, depending on how much BTC they have, has been done, you know, over the last few months, um, you know, from a lot of, you know, just in the crypto market broadly, like with the fallout of everything that took place back in June. But obviously, you know, there's like an overhang of that uh, on, on the actual ASIC market. And so, you know, I would say, you know, if, if you do get that like final capitulatory like leg down in ASIC prices, that could actually, you know, potentially be a really interesting, you know, time to, to go ahead and, you know, purchase those rigs and start mining. And you are seeing several funds that are being raised that do exactly this. Um, so, for example, uh, DCG just announced a fund. Uh, I think it's like a collaboration between, uh, structured as like a collaboration between uh, Grayscale and Foundry. Uh, Bitmain also launched a fund. Uh, and then oh, and Binance also launched a $500 million fund. So, you know, and the Bitmain one, I think, was 250 mil. And I'm assuming Grayscale's probably isn't that small either. So, I mean, you're looking at somewhere around like a billion dollars of capital. Uh, and then, you know, not to mention potentially like, you know, these other like alternative, you know, distressed asset investing funds that are probably looking at these dynamics as well. So, I mean, you're looking at like, you know, somewhere around a billion dollars of capital, at least that's like publicly been announced that I, that I found 
um, you know, that that's looking to purchase these assets on the cheap. So, like, I, I do think there there is a buyer. It's just a question of like, okay, like, you know, if these lenders are going to have to all sell these these rigs at once, you know, is that going to you know potentially cause some like final leg down in, in ASIC prices that you know these guys are you know kind of salivating over and like sharks swimming in the water waiting for. Um, but in terms of like you know like the long term viability of the space, you know, I've started to see the you know. Bitcoin miner death spiral FUD that, you know, has, has taken place several times before in Bitcoin's existence. I don't buy into any of that. Also, like the Bitcoin price trades in tandem, like with the value of ASICs, you know, so like if you're able to scoop up a bunch of these, it's a productive asset. And then as soon as, you know, you can try and turn them and flip them kind of near the top of their value. So I know I'd be buying some of them if I had $300 million. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I would say like the way to frame ASICs is like, it's an asset that trades at higher beta to BTC and also gives you a dividend through like the rewards that you're, that you're getting from mining. So, you know, if you can time the purchase of the ASICs, right? Like, absolutely. I think, you know, it, it would be very advantageous. Like if you could, you know, purchase on the back half of some, you know, potential for selling. Of yeah, the, of absolutely. The, you know, so I've long been like a, a Bitcoin bull, but the one thing that I'm personally skeptical about is transitioning to a fee-based model as the blog subsidy, you know, keeps declining in half every four years. How do you feel about that? Do you think that it's possible to make this transition in the state that Bitcoin's at today? Um, and, and if so, like how? No, it's a great question, right? It's something like people talk about for a long time. I don't really think I have like any super interesting take on this. I'm with you. I think it's something that needs to be solved. But like, I'm an optimist in the sense of like, I think people will figure it out because they'll have to figure it out. Um, so I mean, look, I don't have a you know specific solution that like I've come up with that no one else has thought of. But I, I do remain on like the optimistic side that people will figure it out as we get you know towards them. But you know what, man? Like by then I'll be dead anyway, so it doesn't really affect me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's just like kind of interesting to see like the Cosmos Hub. Uh, you know, they're moving away from exponential inflation, uh, kind of like replacing the security subsidy with revenues from their interchange security model. You know, we've seen ETH be deflationary, um, even in in uh, uh, even despite the uh, bear market demand for block space. Uh, so yeah, it's definitely interesting to kind of think about how this uh, was going to affect Bitcoin. And, you know, it tends to be a little bit slower in development than some of these other chains. So, um, yeah, I'm with you. Like, it's definitely something we need to work on some way. What about the Lightning Network, Will? Are yeah. you bullish on Lightning Network adoption, or do you view that as kind of a nothing burger? Um, I mean, I think it has the potential to be something really important. You know, like, it's obviously very small now. I think it's, like, right around 100 mil in terms of, like, public lightning network capacity um but you know i think people like you know jack mollers who recently raised like 75 mil to build out his company strike which in the bear market is like not a small sum um there's definitely a lot of people that are working on you know turning bitcoin kind of into that that medium of exchange i do just think you kind of get into this like uh i guess paradox of like on one hand you've got you know b people holding btc right as like kind of this like long-term store of value but then at the same time incentivizing people to spend it i think is difficult at least in this stage of where bitcoin is and potentially that's capping off some of the lightning network growth that you would see from like bitcoin native users now on the other hand i do think you have the argument and you know i think you could make this for eth as well um that you know you've got this like kind of bedrock foundation of you know bitcoin security um 
which I would say is like the most secure of, of all crypto, um, you know, you've got this like bedrock foundation of security for payments to be made on top, uh, on top of. So like, you know, very similar to, you know, like the use case for stable coins where, you know, people are not, not only do you have like people using, you know, stable coins and market making and just like, uh, capital efficiency reasons, but like also people overseas who don't have any access to dollars uh, and are utilizing stable coins just to be able to, you know, they could just open up a digital wallet and instantly get access to dollars. I think similarly, you know, you have some like potential use case for lightning in that sense of permissionless, you know, transactions for people that otherwise maybe, you know, aren't able to do so. Um, so I think like it's just a question of like, will that use case continue to grow? Because, like, personally, I'm not spending my Bitcoin, right, because I view it as a store of value, you know, and hedge against, you know, uh, global, like, monetary debasement, right? So, you know, I'm not personally going to be spending it. Um, I'll just spend my fiat, you know. So, therefore, like, I, you know, I've, I've, you know, never used Lightning in terms of, you know, actually using it for transaction. I mean, I've played around with it, right, to just, like, you know, see how it works. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not going to, you know, go to the store and open up a lightning channel and, and try to transact with my BTC because I think the opportunity cost of not holding it is much greater. So I do think that's kind of like a dilemma of like, you know, what is BTC? Very similar to kind of, you know, like the ETH dilemma, I would say, between, you know, ETH being like this, you know, ultrasound money and then also being, um, you know, gas that you, you know, have some like money velocity aspect to it of, of giving ETH value. So... Yeah, I mean, like, I think uh, it's just kind of a question of, like, what it, what do people view the use case of BTC as? But I do think, like, over the long term, like, as as BTC matures, right, like, as we're on, like, this quote-unquote, like, S-curve of adoption, like, as we kind of get to the, you know, plateaued, you know, back half of that, then I think absolutely, like, people will spend their BTC because you won't have some, like, rapid, you know, monetary appreciation. Yeah, I think that's a good take. I pretty much asset. agree with, with everything you said. Um, in terms of back to kind of like steering back to the report where you were talking about Bitcoin mining, like we saw, you know, the exodus from China and the hash rate decline by 30% back, you know, maybe a year ago. I can't remember when it was. So do you think like hash rate because of how secure the Bitcoin network yeah. is, is kind of just more noise? Or do you view like actual trading signals and on-chain like metrics as it relates to hash rate? Like you mentioned the hash urbans. Yeah, sure. So, do you wanna do you wanna talk about on-chain analytics? Because that's like a whole another. I guess specifically on specifically hash rate. And then if you do want to touch on analytics, you can. Okay. 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 Well, yeah, we could get into that. I guess after too. Um, sure. Yeah, I, I don't really think it's necessarily like a trading signal. I'm kind of of the belief that hash follows price. Um, obviously, it's like kind of been like a you know chicken or egg question. But like, I think when we think of back, you know, the framework we talked about earlier, right? Like the, la the, the lag in terms of like the peak of hash rate is after price. That's because people are plugging in rigs because price is going up, right? Price isn't going up because people are plugging in rigs. Um, so I, I'm, I'm kind of in the camp of hash tends to, to follow price. But in terms of like actual material trading signals, I haven't found much value out of it except for looking at the hash ribbons, which you kind of touched on, which is that, you know, the 30 and 60 day moving average, because whenever you get that kind of bearish cross, what, what that fundamentally indicates is not that like hash rate itself going down, all of a sudden people think the network is worth less, but the fact that you likely have some type of, you know, like forced selling from, from miners in, in that case, because, you know, machines are obviously being unplugged because hash rates. Decline. That makes a lot of sense. 
Now, we've seen a couple attempts at making Bitcoin kind of like an on-chain reserve asset. Like we saw it with LFG, with Terra and Luna. We hear the Cosmos folks talking about doing that with, I think it's called Bablion. Dan, you can correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, do you see that being a narrative going forward? Uh, I don't know, man. I, I, I just think Bitcoin and the you know, USD exchange rate is just way too volatile to have BTC as like a reserve asset at this point. Unless, you know, you, you're in a situation like someone like a sailor, right, where like, you know, the debt that he took out to buy BTC is at a very low interest rate and he doesn't have to pay that back, I think, until 2025, like late 2025. So like, you know, in terms of using it as a reserve asset, I think it also, you know, it comes down to that in addition to like, what what's the size of like the allocation that you're giving to BTC? Obviously, like if it's like one or three or five percent of your overall balance sheet, like you know, it's not a big deal if it declines, you know, fifty percent or something like that. But like, um, you know, should we be using it as like a short term reserve asset in the way that like LFG? Did? Yeah, I'm with so. you on I just that. Think it's far uh, too and, you know, kind of winding down now. I know we're kind of running close on time, so I just want to get some insights uh, kind of from the uh, boots on the ground trader, right? I know you've been tweeting a little bit about how you've been trading, uh, dabbling more in, in trading some of these altcoins, uh, seeing your takes on Sushi and kind of love the insights you've provided. So kind of want to get your take on what you think will be uh, kind of catalyzing some of these <clears throat> token runs in the next bull run. Uh, you know, we see this narrative around real yield. Uh, it's becoming super popular uh, over the last couple of months. Uh, and I, you know, is protocol revenue a meme? You know, will fund fundamentals actually matter in the next bull run, or will it just continually be about who has the best narrative at the on a given day and who can get the most eyeballs? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I guess we could start with like what I find useful trading is like first of all price action, looking at the derivatives, uh, and then also narratives, and then like with the confluence of those, like if the narrative that's developing is reflected in price action, then that's confirming the thesis you have about the narrative. And then also like watching derivatives to like catch people off sides, like sushi, for example, as you said, I've you know been tweeting about a bit, you know, that's been trading super clean in the sense of like, you can see, you know, a bunch of, um, you know, open interest piling in. Uh, you look at things like liquidity heat maps to see that like a bunch of longs are piling in. Uh, and then, you know, once price goes below where all those songs piled in, okay, obviously those guys are off sides. And uh, you've seen Sushi basically like flush people out uh, on both sides like four or five times now. And that, that's been trading, I think partially because it's such a PPP market, it's been trading very clean on things like these liquidity heat maps. Um, but like, I guess longer term, like thematic type of like what, what you're asking. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I think the way you got to kind of think about it is like, who are the market participants, right? So like in 2020, 2021, who were the market participants? They were all retail people with like stimulus checks, right? And so like, I think uh, I think this is why like a lot of the people that expected DeFi to outperform, and like I did as well heading into 2021 were wrong, you know, compared to things like Dogecoin or Cumrocket. Um, they, were, they were wrong because like, you know, the, the amount of capital that was, that was coming into the market in the outsized way was from retail you know, who, who again, like had, you know, stimulus checks and ex excess capital to kind of gamble on, um, you know, heading into the next bull run, you know, who's likely to have, you know, who, who's likely to be the primary, like, you know, uh, where inflows are coming from. It's probably going to be more of these like traditional funds, I would say, like, especially in these market conditions, like you're not getting a lot of retail inflows, like retail is like struggling to even pay for food. That's like rapidly and, you know, increasing relative 
to uh, you know their income, so you know they're not gambling on our shit coins. But um, you know, heading into the next bull run, I think you know who are, who are the basket of market participants that are most likely to be like the outsized capital inflows. It's probably like some of these traditional funds that like checked out crypto over the last few years um, and like been building out infrastructure. I mean, look, we've seen like crazy announcements this year that like no one's talked about. You know, things from like Google announcing like a node service. Uh, BlackRock offering, you know, crypto to their clients, Citadel building out a crypto exchange. You know, we had JP Morgan using a DeFi protocol last week. We had Arweave collaborating with Meta. Like, all, you know, all these guys are, like, coming in and building out infrastructure. Um, so I would say those are the most likely basket of market participants to be around. And so to, to your point, um, you know, I think, like, things like real-world assets make sense because they're likely to make sense to a lot of the, you know, those type of market participants that are going to be driving the outsized inflows. And I just think in general, like, these financial infrastructure type of products, I think we'll see a lot more of the capital inflows on a relative basis to something like a Dogecoin or, you know, a Cumrocket or these other, like, you know, completely, you know, speculative vehicles. The Cumrocket, the reserve asset of the entire world, of course. Uh, yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. And, yeah, I think it kind of sounds like, um, you know, in this upcoming bull run, uh, the, you know, there's always the debate between, you know, will the base layer accrue value or the apps built on top uh, accrue the value, right? So the original thesis was like the FAT protocol thesis uh, where these base layers would accrue a ton of value. Um, but then we saw a lot of these all, all, all L1s come out and really just not gain a huge traction or really never felt, like kind of failed to find product market fit, you know? Like these high throughput, uh, high TPS chains like Solana and Aptos have really like they seem, you know, to me, it seems like there will be an application for that. I just don't know if we've come across it yet. Um, and so, like, you know, there's always the promise of order booking or order books coming on chain. And, you know, we've really failed to see that come to life. You know, there's still new new attempts at doing this, like, uh, say, in the Cosmos ecosystem. And they're using uh, their Nitro technology, uh, kind of bringing this SVM from Solana over into the Cosmos ecosystem. Um, but yeah, like, uh, do you have any opinions on whether it'll be the apps themselves or the base layers that are accrued this? I personally don't have any strong opinions on it, but I would love to have uh, our DeFi analyst, Knower. People might know him from Twitter. He's got a fairly like large account. It's called uh, Knower of Markets. He's brilliant, man. Uh, he, he tends to he tends to kind of stand in the camp of like ETH is going to be the winner takes all of the entire space. Um, but to answer your question, like, I just don't want to give you, like, a half-assed answer if I don't have a good one. So I would say, like, maybe we'll get him on in a few yeah, weeks and he great. can uh, I'd, uh, go into I'd the weeds with you about that. For sure. I guess we can close it out here with uh, one last question. Um, do you buy into the flipping narrative uh, between ETH and Bitcoin, or do you think Bitcoin remains king for the very long future ahead? Um. Yeah, sure. I think... You could see ETH like temporarily flip BTC, but like in terms of like, do I think ETH's market cap will be larger than Bitcoin's in like 20 years? I would say no. And the reason is because like I view BTC as like the underlying monetary premium of the world. And I do think like there's a world where BTC and ETH can coexist, where you have BTC, we have BTC as kind of that like, you know, monetary asset. Um, but you also have, you know, ETH as kind of this like underlying like, you know, digital infrastructure for like the entire world and, you know, the, the digital decentralized, um, you know, f financial plumbing, I guess you could say. Um, so like, I think, I think they'll coexist. To answer your question though, like over the long term, I think BTC, just because of the total addressable market of like the monetary premium of the world, is just larger than ETH. But in the short term, like, I definitely think like in this next bull run, 
Um, you could temporarily see ETH like flip BTC. I don't think that's like a controversial opinion. I think primarily like you'll really see the effects of kind of these supply dynamics that have obviously shifted since ETH transitioned to proof of stake that really haven't materialized to price action yet. Um, I think the thing with ETH that you have to keep in mind is like as you build out like more verticals or like subsets of, of you know, like network activity, now we've got, you know, um, GameFi, NFTs, DeFi, borrowing, like, et cetera. Like as, as that continues to GameFi, you know, as, as it continues to grow out, right, you have more potential inflows of network activity to catalyze the supply dynamics. And, you know, I think this, the cynical take is that the network activity falls price, right? So, like, as crypto goes through, like, just this natural, you know, bear market and you come out of that and price bottoms out solely for the fact that, like, this is a speculative market, um, you know, you'll see the network activity, in my opinion, follow the price. And once you kind of get that feedback loop between network activity, price, and on top of that, the narrative of, you know, the supply dynamics and, like, the, you know, um, eco-friendly aspect of ETH on a relative basis to BTC, like, once you get, whether I agree with it or not, right, like, obviously, like, I'm, a, I'm a more in, like, the Bitcoin ideological camp, but, like, I do acknowledge that, like, other people care about that, right? So, like, I think you have to be objective about it, and, like, I, I do think there's a very, you know, outsized likelihood that that translates to some type of, you know, like, reflexive feedback loop between all of those factors, and that could definitely, like, temporarily push ETH's price higher than... You, know, you perhaps expected. I see what you did there with reflexive there. Uh -huh. But that's a, that's a perfect segue to uh, yeah. Where can people find you, Will? Uh, I'd love to hear you give a little shout out to your new uh, your new research uh, shop and uh, yeah, give yourself a little personal plug here. Yeah, sure. No, I appreciate you guys, and uh, it's awesome you guys are doing the podcast. I ran a podcast for about a year. I know it's I know it's fun. It's it's a grind though for sure. So uh, all the best to you guys. Hopefully, I'll, I'll come back on soon and we'll get someone else from the team on. Um, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at uh, W Clementi III. Uh, you can find our research offering at reflexivityresearch.com. Uh, we cover everything from BTC, ETH, DeFi, and global macro. Uh, I covered the, the Bitcoin section, and then we have some other guys that are way smarter than me that cover the other sections. So if you're interested in that, you can. That's uh, awesome. You know, and and thanks a lot for coming out. on. Well, this was a great discussion, kind of recapping you know, the state of the market for Bitcoin miners. Uh, super informative. Really appreciate you coming on. And, and dropping this knowledge for us uh, and best of luck to you uh, you know it's uh you're right you're definitely right about the podcast being a guy no kidding but uh, uh research in, in itself is, is no joke either so you know best of luck and, and cheers thanks man thanks guys nice, appreciate it all right that was a great interview with uh will clemente he's always super knowledgeable on everything bitcoin you guys should all go check out his research at reflexivityresearch.com but uh dan how did you feel what do you think about the uh struggling bitcoin mining landscape is that bearish or bullish yeah, uh, it's super interesting. I, I think what probably the biggest overall takeaway I had from our conversation was really that, uh, you know, if the public miner and group as a whole were to sell all the Bitcoin on its balance sheets in one fail swoop, it'd be, a, you know, 600, uh, 600 or so million dollars of Bitcoin. And, it, you know, looking at market structure that they could probably get OTC over a couple of days and really not have like a massive uh, impact to BTC price. Uh, I thought that was probably the biggest takeaway just because my personal perception going into this conversation was, you know, we always hear about uh, minor capitulation and the impact that that could have on market structure. Uh, so I, I will say that that's bullish. But for you know, for the sake of argument, I'll, I'll try to kind of take the uh, the bearish side of all these things. Um, and you know, public miners do have 17% of 
uh, of the hash rate. And while that's not a controlling portion, it is still a significant amount of, of hash rate that needs to flow uh, to a different portion of the network if, if they do go out. Um, and if they start to consolidate, then now you go from 17% being spread out across you know, 10 or 12 entities to 17% being uh, consolidated amongst you know, a handful. So uh, it is interesting, but I, I do think uh, it is something to watch for if some of these larger miners uh, do go under. Yeah, I'm just not too concerned about it. I mentioned in the interview briefly that there was 30% plus of the hash power went out when the, the China mining ban took place uh, about a year ago. So I just don't really think hash rate's super important in like terms of price structure. So I kind of agree with Will on that front. Uh, but I will say it's an important metric to look at over the long term in order to ensure that the, the health of the network is continuing continuing to grow. Uh, how, what do you think about uh, the companies being bought out or maybe some mergers and acquisitions? Do you think that's you know, bullish or bearish? Do you think it maybe centralizes the network? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think your last point's the, the takeaway from uh, some of this M&A activity that could potentially go on. You know, if, if some of the larger miners do go bankrupt uh, and are unable to facilitate the debt that they've taken on, uh, you're, you're likely to see some consolidation here, in my opinion. You know, there's still, like, the industry as a whole is still so young. There's going to be people willing to take bets on it. You know, I, I know BlackRock's had their eye on uh, miners for quite some time now. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if they really make a push in getting more involved if, if some of these larger names do go under. Um, yeah, I think the, the centralization risk is probably the thing most important to keep an eye on, uh, just given that, you know, if one entity had 17% control, that would be a bit concerning. Uh, but, you know, if that's spread out around multiple entities, then it immediately becomes like less of a risk in my opinion. But um, definitely, definitely keep it worth keeping an eye on some of these larger names. Yeah, I would just go back to how cheap it is to run and operate a Bitcoin node. Like it's only like 130 bucks. You can do it on a Raspberry Pi with an internet connection and minimal power sources. And at the end of the day, the nodes are kind of the, the end all be all of which chain we're following. So I'm really not too concerned about centralization as it relates to Bitcoin. Right. Yeah. So if you think about kind of like the fee based model, I, to me, this is the biggest issue with Bitcoin. But, you know, how do you how do you see uh, a transition away from this security subsidy as a couple happenings from now? And this it won't be as large. Right. You know, today a block reward is six point two five Bitcoin. Um, but after, you know, in 2028, we'll see, we'll go through two more uh, halving cycles from now. Uh, and that 6.25 would fall to 1.56 Bitcoin. Uh, so if, you know, if price were to stay the exact same, that's a change from $125,000 per block uh, to around $31,000 per block. So how do you think the network can kind of adapt to this um, and make a transition? Yeah, this has long been my biggest question in my head around Bitcoin because I've long been a Bitcoin bull. I guess it comes down to two things. Can Lightning Network become successful? If so, then there's more transaction uh, activity occurring at the end of the day on the Bitcoin base layer. So that's one route. And then two is you could potentially lower the block height so that way less transactions fit in a block. And then the, basically you'd be intentionally congesting the network so that fees would make up a greater portion of minor revenue. Uh, but yeah, I would just tend to agree with Will. Like, I'd bet on human ingenuity. I don't think you know Bitcoin bulls and devs are gonna just watch this thing fold. I think that changes will be made as necessary. How about you? Yeah, um, I think that's a great point. I I do think Will hit the nail on the head uh, with his comments around the Lightning Network, though, right? Like, if Bitcoin's this pristine asset, and I I don't want to spend it. I want to accumulate as much as I possibly can. And this is where I think stable coins have a huge uh, role in the ecosystem, right? 
Um, you know, if I'm a Bitcoin maximalist, I love Bitcoin, then I want to spend as many dollars as I can and accumulate as much BTC as I can. Uh, and so stablecoins facilitate this perfectly. Uh, I like using a smart contract network, right? I can hoard and accumulate all these assets of my choosing uh, while also having the ability to spend um, stablecoins. So I think like if you look at Ethereum, right? Like I can hold wrap Bitcoin on Ethereum. Of course, that creates a new uh, custody risk, but just putting that aside for now, if I'm accumulating Bitcoin on Ethereum um, and then spending uh, spending my stablecoins, then I'm like able to accumulate while still spending. Uh, and so it's like, why? Like, I, I feel like there would need to be some sort of stablecoin or some other currency that I'd want to spend on the Lightning Network before I could really see uh, a true product market fit for, for that. Yeah, and that kind of leads well into the last point I wanted to ask you about, Dan. And like, I was surprised with Will's reaction in, you know, Bitcoin maybe not being as much of a reserve asset as it was initially meant to be. I asked it in the context of like other smart contract platforms, so like Cosmos, Terra tried it, um, and he maybe seemed bearish on that. But then he also said that, you know, one, three, five percent of a company's balance sheet should be uh, Bitcoin potentially, but he doesn't see it ever being a, a fully reserve asset given the volatility in relation to the U.S. dollar pair. So how do you feel about that? Do you think Bitcoin will ever be a reserve asset or do you think there's just not enough utility around it to support that use case? You know, the volatility standpoint, like it, you know, we're still, it's been over a decade since uh, Bitcoin's inception, right? But it's still so young uh, and it's a utility in the space that I, I do see the potential world where, uh, you know, 20 years from now, Bitcoin's so established and there's just such a smaller amount of volatility around it. And that probably does have a lot to do with uh, a shrinking block subsidy, like there's less sell pressure. Um, one of the biggest distinctions I think you can like visualize is going to ultrasound money and playing with that proof of, wake, proof of work, proof of stake toggle uh, for how Ethereum would look if it was still on the proof of work network or how it looks today being that it transitioned to proof of stake uh, and was able to kind of reimagine its tokenomics and it's pulled, it's removed over like, a, maybe not over, but very close to a billion dollars of sell pressure, right? Like without these uh, incentives flowing into the uh, validators and or the miners in, in the case of proof of work, um, the tokenomics do start to feel a little bit more sustainable. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It, it's tough to say, uh, but personally, I kind of like Sonny Agarwal, the Osmosis founders take that, you know, Bitcoin's an app chain. It, it serves a very specific purpose uh, and where that app chain gets plugged in is like yet to be seen. Um, but it makes a lot of sense. Like I, I like the narrative of Bitcoin as this pristine collateral uh, that's super simple and only serves like one function. Uh, and that is to have a structural monetary policy that does not change through time. I think that's a very attractive quality uh, it's just a question of like, where can I use that? And to me, it does look like on-chain uh, resources make more sense. Um, you know, I think we need better ways to hold Bitcoin on different chains in a decentralized and secure manner. Uh, but yeah, as a whole, I, I do kind of like that th that thesis that it is hard money. Yeah, I would agree. I, I really don't have much to add there. Like, I think Bitcoin is just so beautiful because of its simplicity and because of the fact that it moves so slowly and it's not trying to do so many things you know it, it hasn't tried to do that that experiment eth is kind of trying to be a monetary asset it's trying to be used for payments it's trying to be a smart contract platform so i love eth but i do love bitcoin and its simplicity and i think there's a spot for that uh, in the world like no other chain is as easy to to run a note on than, than Bitcoin. And I don't see that changing anywhere in the near future. So bullish Bitcoin.
Strong agree there. I think it's probably a good place to wrap it. So, you know, appreciate everyone tuning in, and uh, we'll see you next week on uh, next week's episode of Zero X Research. Thanks, everyone.